Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodinToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to the very first episode of the Right on Hollywood podcast at JustTheNews.com. This week's show features an interview with the CEO behind the web's funniest website. It's Seth Dillon of the Babylon Bee. And if you haven't read his site, you're missing all the jokes that Colbert and company won't tell, but they should. I thought I'd start this show with a little introduction, even though, as I always tell my kids, Daddy is very, very famous. You know, I grew up longing to draw superheroes the Marvel Comics way, but I realized at the end of my very long, extended college career that I couldn't draw hands or feet. That's not a good sign. So I shifted to journalism, and I hoped one day to review movies, because I loved movies. I grew up watching Abbott and Costello films. I've always loved movies. My dad taught me that, and it never went away. Of course, the idea of reviewing movies for a newspaper seems kind of crazy. It's a hard gig. But I eventually got there. Long, boring story. I won't share the details. But along the way, I realized that I didn't think like other movie critics think. I was right of center, and the vast, vast, vast... Did I mention vast? Majority of my peers were liberal. Nothing wrong with that. No crime in that. But it really does show in their reviews. So I decided to do the opposite, to review movies from a right-of-center perspective. Now, what does that really mean? It's a question I get a lot. Well, I'm not going to rubber stamp a thumbs-up in the grand Siskel and Ebert tradition for a Michael Moore movie, which are, of course, extremely left-of-center. And pro-life films aren't immediately dubbed by me as propaganda, because you see that a lot. Plus, if a film's cast isn't perfectly diverse, I'm not going to deduct any points from that in my review. Some other people are starting to do that. It's happening more and more lately. So, just a little disclaimer for those who don't know exactly what a right-of-center entertainment critic is. That's me. Over the years, I've worked for Breitbart News and Liveset before embracing my solo status. These days, I run HollywoodInToto.com, the right take on entertainment. And of course, I've rejoined the podcast universe with this show. And for those who heard my old show and were wondering what happened, well, the pandemic hit. 
And having my two young sons around the house 24-7 made recording just about impossible. But now I'm back, thanks to Just the News. So what can you expect from Right on Hollywood? Well, cool guests, for starters. I want to talk to folks who are impacting the culture in a powerful way, and sometimes maybe angering all the right people. How cool is that, right? Of course, I'm going to share movie and TV reviews with you on a week-to-week basis because there's just too much content out there right now. And I'd love to steer you clear of the clunkers. There are a lot of clunkers. Thank you, Netflix. We'll also take Hollywood to task when it tucks down to you, the audience, and when they share fake news far and wide on social media. They do that a lot. Now, the mainstream media won't fact-check liberal stars, but we will. This podcast is also going to take you behind the scenes of Hollywood, not just with the interviews in question, but I want to kind of, you know, take the curtain, pull it aside, and kind of show you how the sausage is made, at least from a film critic point of view. Case in point, oh, this is one of my favorite pitch letters in a very long time. But let me give you a little background here. A lot of independent film studios are desperately trying to get attention, and I don't blame them. They are overwhelmed by the competition all the Black Widows and all these movies that have lots of money and marketing behind them, well, they get all the the air, the oxygen in the film community. So if you're a smaller budgeted film and you're working with a smaller studio, it's hard just to kind of be heard, let alone be seen. So I have a lot of sympathy for these different outlets and all the different PR people who are charged with getting more attention. It's why they reach out to me all the time. Now, this particular pitch, though, didn't exactly win me over even though it's really trying hard to do just that. So here we go, and just a note, forgive the grammatical errors, they are not mine. Greetings, trendsetter. Our esteemed greetings to you. We are really excited to let you know that we are a fan of your podcast channel. Your contents were amazing, and we are really enthralled by your amazing segments. We at fill-in-the-blank sees you as someone who has a great influence over thousands and millions of your subscribers and listeners. We have a new movie called Fill in the Blank, and we'd love to talk about it in one of your podcast streams, hoping that this will merit your attention, and we look forward to meeting you soon. (laughs) I'm not just a podcaster, I'm a trendsetter. Don't touch that dial, you're listening to my daddy's podcast. My Toto Take of the Week is Riders of Justice. Yeah, I hate the title too, but you got to trust me on this one. The great Mads Mikkelsen stars as a soldier who comes back home after his wife is killed in a train accident. Or was it an accident? Now his character wants revenge, but this is not your typical Charles Bronson film. Death Wish, this is a new chapter for sure. For starters, Riders of Justice is a comedy at times. And if you think vigilante movies shouldn't be funny... You're wrong, and and I have to say, I was wrong too. I had no idea that this kind of material could be hilarious. It often is. Now, this is a Danish import, and it's funny, it's heartbreaking, it's sober at times, and the action scenes pop just the way you want them. you got to have that in a vigilante movie. Now, Mickelson is such a compelling actor, and if you haven't seen his take on Dr. Lecter and the uh, NBC series Hannibal, you've got to stream it right now. Three seasons, amazing Actually, not for the faint of heart. Pretty gross stuff for broadcast television, but he is sensational. I actually think he might be as good as Anthony Hopkins, and that seems like a terrible thing to say from a movie critic, but boy, Mickelson is spectacular in that show. But back to Riders of Justice. One of the things I loved about this movie is the secondary characters. They're fun, they're interesting, they're quirky, they're very flawed, and they're very human. 
You almost wish they'd get this whole gang back together again for a sequel. Who knows if that'll happen? I don't think this has been a big blockbuster, at least not stateside, but that doesn't matter. It's just a good film. Now, Riders of Justice is available right now on video-on-demand services, but if you're a Hulu subscriber, it's waiting for you to see right now. Please check it out. One of the more frustrating celebrities in recent years has been Russell Brand. Brand absolutely stole that movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which was quite funny, one of the better comedies in recent years. And his shtick seemed like a really good fit for a long comedy career, at least on the big screen. But, of course, he's had some clunkers along the way and doesn't do many movies at this point. But along the way, he embraces inner activist and what celebrity hasn't at some point in this process. And it turned out he was yet another multimillionaire who loved socialism. Are there any mirrors in your house, Russell? Lately, though, he's been expanding his horizons in some really unpredictable ways. Last year, he sort of kind of defended some Trump voters who were frustrated with the results of the election, and they were wondering if the electoral process was on the up and up. That act alone, which he did alongside Matthew McConaughey, another free thinker, is pretty stunning from a celebrity, especially in this day and age. You're supposed to hate Trump first and foremost, above all else. Any sort of empathy, it doesn't fly. But Brand did just that. Kudos to him. But later on, he started questioning other things, too. He's been asking why big tech has been suppressing so much information about the pandemic. The data, opinions, all sorts of things that maybe should be out in the open so we can get a better understanding of what's going on in the country and the world. He's like, let's have more voices, not less. He sounds a little bit like Andrew Breitbart. And more recently, he's been reading enough about the Russian collusion hoax where he's like, you know what? I think we've all been had. And that's a terrible, terrible thing. He's right. It is a terrible thing. And more people should realize it. But just admitting that, again, shocking stuff. Now, he is a shocking comedian, but this didn't feel like shtick, at least not to me. Now, one of the things he's been up to of lately, he's been talking to people on the other side of the aisle. Again, kudos. He's talked up uh, Candace Owens, Ben Shapiro. These are major conservative figures, and just talking to them alone is a big deal. Not sure you remember that Mark Duplass, who's a very talented actor and producer, said something kind about Ben Shapiro, I guess a couple of years ago on Twitter. Oh, the blowback. Just an absolute wave of how dare you, how dare you. And what did Mark do? He backpedaled. He apologized. He basically bowed down to the mob. Russell Brand, for better or worse right now, is doing no such thing. And I have to say, it makes you wonder what's going on with Russell Brand. Is he having that red pill moment? Is he questioning his old beliefs? Is he still a socialist? (laughs) I guess you have to ask, is he going to be wearing a red MAGA hat anytime soon in the great Kanye West tradition? No, I don't think so. I don't think he's kind of cast aside his socialism views, but I'm not really sure. And I don't even think it matters. Having a celebrity with a pulpit and an audience who's willing to talk to the other side who's willing to say we need more information, not less. Be willing to have a conversation about things and telling everyone else to, instead of telling everyone else to just be quiet, those are all good things. And I have to say at this point, I'm really curious to see what Russell Brand has to say next. There are certain websites I visit every single day. Instapundit, Daily Wire, Ace of Spades, And, of course, the Babylon Bee. 
They said, I often go to the bee after seeing a tweet or a Facebook post about one of their amazing stories. People can't stop sharing their fake news headlines, which, of course, savage the left with jaw-dropping precision. I just amaze sometimes how good they are and how quick they are, too. They really pounce on the headlines. Yes, they pounce and seize just like Republicans often do. Now, they often tweak the right, too, and they've had some good fun at President Trump's expense. But in today's comedy landscape, their willingness to torch progressives, it makes the side a must-read. Who else is doing that with this kind of consistency and humor? Plus, The Bee isn't just a website anymore. The company has a really fun, no-nonsense podcast, a lot of the same kind of humor you can hear there, plus some great interviews. And their YouTube channel, which I just realized recently, I'm kind of late to the party here, serves up a lot of hilarious animated clips. Funny, funny stuff. Again, if Saturday Night Live was Saturday Night Live, kind of like it was back in the day, they'd be airing material like this. They won't now, which is why you have to go to YouTube and other platforms to see it. Thank heavens for the Babylon Bee. They're doing exactly what we need right now. Now, Seth Dillon oversees Operation B. He's the CEO of the company. How cool a gig is that? He's also a pretty funny guy himself. Check him out on Twitter, at Seth Dillon, and you'll see what he has to say about different events and how he defends his own company against some of the big tech attacks on him. It gets pretty ugly sometimes. Now, Seth talks with me about the sorry state of modern comedy, why big tech censorship is kind of helping and hurting the Beast cause, and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy my chat with Seth Dillon. Seth, thanks for joining the podcast. Now, I know you were a fan of the Babylon Bee before you became the CEO. And I was kind of curious, what has being in charge taught you about the whole process of creating political satire, doing it daily? I mean, it's one thing to kind of read and appreciate what's going on on the screen, but you're in charge, you're kind of pushing the buttons. What's What's been sort of the learning lesson there? Well, uh, so a couple of things. I mean, the nice thing was when I when I took over the operation, we had a, kind of a built-in editor-in-chief in Kyle Mann. So um, he... Uh, he stepped into and filled that role right from the start. So uh, I wasn't having to just sink or swim, jumping in, managing the content side mm-hmm. of things. I was really focused more on the business side. So that was a, a real lifesaver having Kyle there to, to drive the content side of things. So um, and he's just, you know, he was he's just a extremely talented and creative person um, and had been working with Adam Ford, our founder, for quite some time before I, I got involved. So um it was in it was in good hands uh, with him managing it. When I, you know, when I really started getting involved on the creative creative side, it was really not to drive the ship, but to just pitch ideas and contribute in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, I wasn't even really providing them with much guidance, so I really gave them a lot of free reign. Um, but I played around here and there, pitching ideas, and uh, and I probably pitched a hundred or so ideas before I even had one of them published. So <laughs> Definitely a learning curve there for me to adopt uh-huh. the bee's voice and uh, and slip into a groove. Yeah, that's kind of humbling, isn't it? When they're <laughs> when the boss in charge is getting his ideas humbly rejected, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, he, Kyle didn't know what to think about it. He's like, "Wait a minute, do I? You know, I, I, you're sending me these ideas. Is it okay if I don't publish them?" Not funny. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that was a bit of a. a a funny start where I couldn't get anything published and uh-huh. I wasn't really frustrated. I knew that it was, that there was going to be a learning curve with it. But so I just, I just had fun with it. And I would just keep trying, keep pushing and, and, uh, and trying new angles at things. And eventually I started tossing out ideas that worked. So, uh, I kind of figured it out. Kind of checked into the formula. I knew what they wanted. Uh, you know, when I think about political comedy, I often think about Tina Fey and her impression of Sarah Palin. It's a few years ago now, but I really think that that had a, uh, a profound impact on political humor. I think that comedians saw that. 
and they realized how that particular impression really had an impact on what people thought of Palin, for better or worse. You could have loved her, you could have hated her, but I really think it had an impact. And I think that comedians collectively said, oh, gosh, you know, when we tell these jokes, it isn't just ha-ha. It can really have an impact on the culture. And I, I think things changed after that. It, do you think it's a fair assessment, or are there have there been other bigger cultural events that maybe shifted satire to where it is today? I think that was, uh, I think it's a notable one. I mean, you think of her saying, uh, 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 I can see Russia from my house, you know, that, that line, um, that kind of stuff. I mean, look, there were people who actually believed that Sarah Palin was the one who said that and, and didn't realize that it came from Saturday Night Live. So they actually fell into that same kind of uh, uh, situation that we often find ourselves in where, you know, people think the story is true and uh and end up believing it and they want to attack the satirist for that rather than um the person whose conduct or uh you know lack of intelligence or lack of integrity or hypocrisy or whatever made the satire so believable in the first place um so i think it's a funny example of that as far as you know other other things i can think of that that drove things in the direction they are now i mean i i think that political satire has always been effective um at times it's been more effective than others, I think, and I think it's most effective when there is a really obvious and strong grain of truth to what you're doing. You know, satirists, like I said, are sometimes, cons- uh, you know, criticized for writing stuff that's too believable, but the, the whole point is that satire needs to be believable. It has to be firmly rooted in the truth. No one's going to think it's funny. No one's going to get the point. It's, it's just going to, it's going to come from left field if it's divorced from reality. So uh, I think it's necessary for that. And I think that the satirists who really nail it, who really make a point and who actually get people thinking and, and do something effective with their work are the ones who've really figured out how to ride on the back of the truth in the direction it's pointing. When you think about the work that the bee does, do you want it to have a cultural impact? I mean, obviously you want to make people laugh. You want to make people think, uh, challenge their perceptions at times is, you know, I think that a Stephen Colbert really wants to kind of move the needle on public opinion. Is that in your purview or is that something you want to avoid? How do you kind of view that angle on comedy like this? Well, as far as to the extent that, you know, we're trying to impact culture, I mean, there's a couple of angles to that, right? I mean, we are we are Christians for one thing. So, you know, we care very much about speaking truth to culture and and uh, and sharing, you know, our worldview and our values, uh, what we believe and why we believe it. And satire is an interesting and effective way of, of doing that to some extent. But I think it's much more effective, more so than, than preaching a positive message. You know, satire is... Uh, is really good at ridiculing bad ideas. Um, so when I like when I try to summarize what our mission statement is, you know, that's how I really sum it up in a nutshell: is we ridicule bad ideas. We try to try to tear them down and expose them and and make light of them and mock them, um, so that the people who hold them uh, feel stupid for holding them, and and people who are on the sidelines looking in can see how ridiculous those views and values are. Um, so I think that's what satire is really good at, and I think it's really the underlying purpose of satire. If you look in um, the Onion, does like an encyclopedia thing, a satirical encyclopedia that they publish, uh, and they define satire as uh, being a wise ass and saying it's for a higher purpose <laughs> or something like that. Um, and it, you know, it, to some extent, that's true. I think a lot of a lot of satirists or comedians will act like you know they're doing something much more important than they are. Um, Kind of arrogantly, you know, just tearing people down and, and saying that, you know, there's really a point to it when there isn't. 
In our case, I think there is a point to it in the sense that we do have an interest in in this time and age, especially where insanity is reigning everywhere you turn, in uh, in pointing out bad ideas before they take root in people's minds and hearts. You know, when AOC hit the uh, national stage, I thought, okay, the the comedians in general will protect her, protect her, but then the dam will break. They'll there'll be too many sort of insane, inane things. And then they'll really kind of tear into her because they, they would see her as maybe a threat to the, the democratic power structure. That hasn't happened yeah. yet. And I, I look around at the landscape and I think there are a lot of Democrats behaving badly, saying crazy things. And the comedian, sort of the population in general, you guys are the exception, obviously, really aren't going there, for lack of a better phrase. Is, what, will, what will have to happen before, uh, you know, mainstream, the late show, all, all these different institutions, before they finally realize – we, we can't just keep ceding this material to the B and their colleagues. I mean, is there a tipping point that we're reaching, or do you think it'll just continue as is? Well, it all depends on the worldview of the person doing the comedy. I mean, most people aren't willing to um, attack their own views and values relentlessly. So, you know, they, if, if they come at the issues from a different perspective than we do, well, there's certainly a demand and an audience for the comedy that we do. I don't think you're going to find many people on the left willing to, um, you know, mock and ridicule themselves. Uh, it, it's just not something that they tolerate. They, they love and they're very good. They're extremely good at ridicule. They're extremely good at mockery and sarcasm and, and, and making people, you know, feel small or look silly. Um, but they're not good at taking that themselves. It's one of the things that I think is refreshing about the bee. You know, the bee does often engage in a lot of self-deprecating humor Mm-hmm. And, you know, Republicans and conservatives uh, and Christians and, and other religious groups are often the target of our satire. And I think it's a really healthy thing to try to keep that balance where um, rather than assuming that everything about what you believe and what you do is blameless is to kind of throw it up there on the wall with a projector and, and look at it and say, are we OK with our own our own, uh, you know, foibles and beliefs and idiosyncrasies and these things that, you know, might be hypocrisy on our part. I don't think the left does enough of that, and I don't think they want to. They're insecure uh, uh, about comedy for some reason. They don't like to be attacked with these jokes, even though they're so good at, at dishing them out. I think when your team does that, it comes from an authentic place. I think one of the jokes you have, the running jokes, is you, you have two jokes that you tell <laughs> overall. Yeah. But, uh, you, know, I, you know, President Trump, for better and worse, I think he would be self-deprecating at times, but it didn't really land because he just was – you know, even his biggest fan would say his ego is enormous, and it it didn't seem like a genuine self-deprecating comment. But I think when when your team does it, it's different. You know, one of the things that conservatives often complain about, especially late night humor, is it's clapter, not comedy, where they're kind of you know reaching out to their fan base, making them smile, making them applaud, but it's not really funny. Is that something that you and your team really work on to avoid? Because I I would think it would be easy to do, even if you're aware of it? I, I mean, what's what's the line there for you guys? I mean, we, we try genuinely to be funny and not be preachy most of the time. You know, I think that's one of the turnoffs with some of like the, the late shows and stuff like that is that they're, they're now going off on these monologues where they have a message and they're trying to like guilt people or shame people and they're getting applause not because they're being funny but because they're saying something that resonates morally with the audience. Um, and you know, we're honestly, when we, when we look at the headlines every morning, we wake up, we look at them and we're trying to do satire on the back of them. We're, we're just trying to think of a funny joke. Um, sadly, we're not able to just kind of run with that as freely as we want to, because 
we now have to think about, well, how's Facebook going to handle this? You know, if we make this joke, uh, if we use this wording, um, you know, is this going to get is this going to get uh, either banned, blocked, taken down, uh, throttled? Um, is it going to get fact checked? Uh, so we have to be thinking about those things now, which is kind of new territory to be in. Um, but generally, we're just trying to be funny. That's all. We, we do want to make people laugh, but we, we also want to make them think. Um, but we're not trying to just preach at everybody or preach to the choir and just get applause from our own side. We want to dig at them a little bit, make them a little uncomfortable. And we get a lot of hate mail for that. But, you know, it, it mean, you know you're not doing it right. If you're doing satire and not getting hate mail, you're not doing it right. That's right. You mentioned some of the attacks on your site, Facebook, Snopes, New York Times. I don't mean to downplay that threat and what it could do to your business because it's considerable. But is there an upside in that it, these attacks maybe get more fans to rally to you or maybe even alert people who weren't aware of the work you were doing to say, oh my gosh, let, let me check it out. And oh, it's funny. Is, is there any sort of sort of benefit to these attacks or is it just really uh, something you have to deal with and, and hopefully conquer? I think there's a huge benefit to it, at least in the short term. You know, it, up to a point, censorship and uh, shadow banning and um, deplatforming, those types of things, up to a point, they draw attention to that which they're trying to suppress, right? It's that, mm -hmm. it's that ironic um, Streisand effect where you try to cover something up and you expose it and draw attention to it. I think that does happen quite a bit and it does draw a lot of eyes to us, it has made us. I mean, look, some of the some of the interviews that I've done on TV in primetime spots with people like Tucker Carlson or Shannon Bream or something like that. I mean, that's only happened as a result of a lot of these attacks and this controversy. So it's it's it generates media attention for sure. And, and it gets eyes on your site and everything. It doesn't mean it's not still a threat. Um, it's a legitimate threat because at any given time, you know, they can decide to take away your platform and your traffic. Um, and so, you know, you still have to, it's still part of the business model to drive traffic through social networks. So um, I think the real, the real concern is just the control that these tech companies have um, and the media and the tech companies working together to collude, to, you know, paint us as being misinformation under the guise of satire or hatred under the guise of satire or something like that. Um, that's still, it, it is a threat and well, it at the same time is driving traffic and notice to us. Um, it's a very real threat that we have to be concerned about, fight back against, be very vocal about and assert our right to be on these platforms because I think we have good arguments for saying that these are not typical private companies. You know, this really is the public forum of the modern age and our laws need to catch up to, uh, to take that into account and, and the first amendment implications of that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's it's a scary time and whatever opportunity is there is is surely mitigated by that larger threat. Uh, you know, the the B is a Christian satire site. It's a, you know, the podcast, the the, the, the animated clips. Now, I, you know, when you think about a behind the scenes of a animation company or a, a humor company, you think there might be robust debates about how far is too far, you know, do you use vulgarity? You know, a lot of that is off off limits for you, for your team. Talk, maybe kind of give us a, a glimpse behind the scenes of the, I don't know if maybe debates is too strong a word, but sort of the conversations you have about, you know, you're a Christian side covering a secular world, a secular government. I'm sure there are places you want to go, maybe things you can't say. Talk about that tension, because I, I imagine it might be kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, we don't have a lot of rules here where we say, you know, these, to these topics are off, um, off limits. Um, we don't we don't impose a lot of restrictions like that. We do encourage and foster debate about the best way to handle sensitive topics because 
I think the, the biggest danger that we face is um, crossing a line that Facebook or Twitter doesn't want us to cross. It's not necessarily something that we don't want to cross, but it's it's a it's a situation where you know we might we might end up hurting ourselves in terms of our standing on those platforms. So we do have to be mindful of that. But then there's the other issue of are we are we going to be potentially misunderstood because the joke here isn't clear enough or or the context for the joke isn't well known enough that people are going to get it. Um, those types of things are really important to take into consideration, especially when you're talking about really sensitive topics like race, for example, um, which which gets people really fired up. If people misunderstand you and think you're making a racist joke, then the next thing you know, you know, you're being attacked from all sides, even though that wasn't your intention. So we have to be mindful of that kind of stuff all the time. But we're not uh, we're not at all the kind of place where we're sitting around, you know, talking about making lists of of off limits topics that we would never touch. I mean, we we are we are pretty uh, we're, we're kind of one of our goals is to make the jokes that you're not supposed to make and to be politically incorrect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we just don't want to do it in a way where we're not misunderstood. Does the Babylon Bee have any maybe sleeper or surprise fans, people in the comedy world who don't want their names out there and you don't certainly have to reveal them here, but people who support the work you do but are a little afraid to even share that fact out loud? I mean, is that is that sort of bubbling up within the comedy community? Yeah, we see a lot of that. In fact, we've had people write for us who would never publicly admit that they write for us. Um, <laughs> They will. They'll write jokes. They'll write scripts. They'll be involved in stuff behind the scenes, but they don't want their name or mm -hmm. face or anything out there because you know they work in you know the gaming industry or Hollywood yeah. or wherever, and uh, and it would be like career suicide to have yeah. to be affiliated with a conservative satire site like ours that's so controversial. Yeah, it's Jimmy um, Kimmel, right? I mean, you don't have to say it, but you can just nod your head. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, we're not. We're. I'm. I am. I'm fine to accommodate that. On the one hand, it bothers me tremendously that people feel the need to do that anonymously and quietly. Um, I'm not personally insulted by it, uh, but I am bothered by the fact that we have a culture and climate where that's necessary, that's for sure. Yeah. Who do you find funny these days? I listened to a, a recent podcast interview you gave, and you talked about Ryan Long, and I'm a huge fan of his. I think he's terrific. But are there other voices out there, other sites, other podcasts that you can recommend that maybe telling the jokes that other people aren't or just have a kind of a unique perspective on comedy these days? The comedians I respect the most right now are the ones who are kind of uh, pushing back on the cancel culture nonsense and these rules, these speech rules about the things you can and can't say. Um, you know, whether they're the most hysterical people or not, you know, I, I, that's beside the point as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I'm really, I have a tremendous amount of respect, for example, for Bill Maher who's doing a lot right now to speak up about that topic. You'll see him talk about um, cancel culture and how extreme the left is going on this stuff and how nobody is safe and they need to knock it off. And and they're starting to sound like a lot of the things that they're saying are starting to sound like onion headlines, how absurd it is, what they're advocating and what they're trying to enforce. And um, so, you know, I, I love that he's pushing back on that. And, uh, and anybody who's willing to do that as far as I'm concerned, the reason I mentioned Ryan Long, you know, is, is Ryan Long the funniest comedian in the world? No, um, but he is funny. And one of the reasons he's so effective and so funny and entertaining right now is because he's making those jokes that you're not supposed to make. He's, he's hitting the issues that are the pressure points, the sensitive points that that um, that, that are supposed to be the, the sacred cows that everybody takes so seriously. You know, he'll deal right with these uh, the, the question of transgender and pronouns and and uh, and race, you know, uh, 
woke and uh, woke mentality and, and and all of this stuff. You know, he's he's in that every day dealing with those types of issues. So comedians who are willing to go there and hit that stuff head on, um, JP Sears is doing a good job of that too. Um, anybody who's doing that is is going to have a huge following right now because people are ready to laugh at this stuff. It's so yeah, nonsensical. They definitely are. Uh, Seth, before we let you go, one last question, maybe even kind of connecting with that theme. Are you optimistic about comedy, about free speech at the moment? I have to say I'm not. And I, I think of myself as a fairly optimistic person, but I, I feel like I'm in short supply. What's your take as far as the next six months to a year? Is Are things changing, getting better, or do you think we have to go into a darker place before we rebound? Uh, I, well, uh, it, the idea that we might go to a darker place first before we re- rebound, I think that's still optimistic because there's a rebound at the end of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think it's very possible that's where things are going to go. I think that it very well could be the case that we will get deplatformed uh, in the near future. Um, and you won't be able to find us on Twitter or Facebook anymore. You'll have to go to, to Gab or Parler or something like that to even find our content. Um, if those sites are even allowed to still be running, uh, I, I think that that's the direction that things are going in, and it, it is uh, it is disconcerting. But at the same time, I do feel a great deal of confidence that um, there's been a lot of mishandling of these issues around, like Section 230 immunity and and the the, the extent of the immunity that these social networks are enjoying in in uh, engaging in imbalanced enforcement of their community terms and uh, and really engaging in ideological viewpoint discrimination. I think that they've taken it too far. It's only a matter of time before either Congress or the, the Supreme Court weighs in on this and deals with it in some way. I know that Justice Thomas, for example, is, is really chomping at the bit to try to uh, uh, evaluate Section 230 and interpret it the way that it was Try to try to reinterpret it the way that it was intended, rather than as the courts have so extravagantly interpreted it to basically give them immunity for anything, including misconduct on the part of these sites. So, um, if if that happens, then I think it will provide a lot of protection. These companies like Twitter are going to have to make a decision about whether or not they want to be, um, uh, you know, politically progressive, openly progressive, and favorable to progressive views and uh, uh, hostile to conservative views, um, or or do they want to enjoy Section 230 immunity? In which case, they have they would they would need to really be a good faith neutral platform that moderates its content, uh, but in a fair way and that doesn't involve um, viewpoint discrimination. Yeah, uh, I think they're going to have to make a choice at some point. So I am optimistic that that we will reach a point where they're held to that. Um, if not. If that doesn't happen, then we'll be in a lot of trouble. But my hope and expectation is that eventually there will be either amendments to the law that make it more clear what the intention was and that prevent this kind of stuff, um, or um, you know, the Supreme Court uh, weighing in on it. I don't disagree. I just will add that I think there needs to be a cultural movement afoot as well to kind of coincide with that, with those legal maneuvers. That's what we need as well, where people are fed up with this. And hopefully when enough people on the left get taken out and their voices are silenced, then maybe more people will realize what's going on. But I hope that tide will turn naturally. That's the kind of thing that tends to swing on a pendulum, right? You know, mm-hmm. you get popular opinion shifts over time. And as things get too extreme in one direction, people really try to pull things back towards the middle and, and correct them. Um, and hopefully we're going to see that. There are a lot of voices speaking up right now about this stuff. Uh, and the more people who do, the more emboldened uh, other people will be. 
Well, I can't imagine a more brave site, comedy or otherwise, than the Babylon Bee. And of course, uh, Seth is the man in charge. Thank you, Seth, for joining Right on Hollywood. Please go to BabylonBee.com for the sharpest political humor around. Takes my breath away sometimes. That's in between the laughs. And of course, if you need more Bee, listen to the Bee's great podcast. And check out their YouTube channel. It's fairly new, I think. I'm seeing a lot of new animation, some funny clips, really good stuff, brave comedy, really laugh out loud material and you can't find that anywhere else these days sadly but hopefully more people will kind of ride to your rescue and kind of do the kind of work that you're doing but for now give our best to the b team seth and uh, thanks for joining the show all right thanks so much thanks for listening to right on hollywood a proud member of the just the news podcast network it's our very first show and there may be some hiccups along the way no matter we're just warming up in hollywood you've got some fact checks coming your way Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at HollywoodandToto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever.